welcome to Millennial Pagan Podcast. I'm your host, Autumn Wolf. And I'm Jarrah Stone. And in studio today, we have the privilege of having J. Allen Cross, author of American Brujeria, Modern Mexican-American Folk Magic. Uh, welcome, Jay. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. No, thank you for coming on. Yeah. So we're going to get into the book a little bit here in a little bit. But of course, we always love taking some time to introduce our guest. Yes. Jay, would you let us know your coming of which story? Uh, This is always an interesting topic for me because the coming of which story was not something that I chose so much as something that sort of happened to me. I come from a, a magical family. That's not to be confused with a family that has patched, passed down, you know, witchcraft secrets for hundreds of years. But we we all have, I guess you would say, abilities. And it kind of depends on which one of us you're talking to at the moment to find out what those are. So for me, you know, I started showing signs of being psychic at a very young age, as well as kind of having some sort of witchcraft abilities. And, you know, my mom, she also has psychic abilities and and similar things to me as well as the rest of my family. My mom was actually adopted and I was really young when we found her birth family. And what was funny is, you know, after kind of everyone kind of got comfortable with us and kind of like, Oh, you know, you have the family eyes and the family ears or, you know, whatever. (laughs) Then slowly after everyone got comfortable, they started coming forward with things like, so does anything uh, weird happen with you guys? And we're like, well, I mean, yeah, but <laughs> what what are we constituting here as weird? And they're like, you know, do you like get angry in a pipe burst or, or do you know when someone's about to die? And we're like, oh, that kind of weird. Um, yes, that does happen. And only like a couple of my aunts kind of sort of whispered like, you know, we're witches. So for, for me, it was something that kind of, <laughs> arrived in my life and then I had to figure out what it was. So kind of the the actual magic arrived and then I found out that, you know, witchcraft is actually a thing that exists in the world outside of, you know, just fairy tales and, and stories and things like that. And so I ended up having to actually learn to use everything in order to get it under control, essentially. It, it was more of a it wasn't so much something that I decided I wanted to learn and went out and did it. It was more of a, uh, a necessity for me to actually learn mm-hmm. how to do the things that my body or I guess spirit or whatever were, were naturally trying to do anyway. So I had to then kind of follow up with that and, and figure out what was going on and then build vocabulary for it and exercises and, and actually get a handle on it. Did your mother's biological family already have ways of kind of helping and guiding you at that point? Or was it like, oh, this is how we are, and then leave it at that? It was very much kind of a, this is how we are. A lot of kind of, you know, something would happen. Everyone would sort of like raise their eyebrows, like, oh, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things that we do <laughs> and then kind of move on. Um, but for, for me, though, it was very important to actually get a handle on it, especially because it seemed to be sort of in excess where I was concerned. So I was one of, well, kind of my generation of cousins that are all the same age are the first ones to actually kind of put vocabulary to it and call it witchcraft or this or that. Or um, So I have some cousins that are channelers and healers and other ones that are, are witches like me. And all of us are, are psychic to varying degrees as well, which is 
kind of the bulk of the family ability is, it centers around psychic work, um, of, of very different kinds, depending on which one of us you're talking to. Right. So what were some of the early things that you did to try and exercise and get a handle on what was going on in your life? Um, it was a lot of learning to do things like meditate, psychic shielding, so that not every, you know, bit of intuition that I had was, you know, screaming at me. I could turn down the volume a bit. A lot of it was kind of figuring out how to stop it from happening when I don't want it to happen. So that was a lot of work through like meditating and, and, and breath work and understanding energy, how it moves, what it responds to, things like that was, was a big part of it. So what would you consider your spiritual and magical practice today? <laughs> that is another interesting question because uh, I feel like <laughs> it changes day to day, at least kind of, you know, what I'm doing or, or what I believe. Because I'm one of those people that, you know, once I receive new information, then I change how I feel about something or, or change mm -hmm. how I view it or things like that. So I'm, I'm constantly kind of evolving with it. Right now, it looks like a lot of folk magic. Um, that is the bulk of my work is, is folk magic, especially from kind of a, a Mexican-American cultural standpoint is where I work a lot of my magic. So I work with a lot of saints. I work with uh, Guadalupe. I work with a lot of Novena candles. I have a bunch of them burning on my desk right here next to me. So I, I definitely work kind of in that arena mostly, but I, I do branch out to other things on occasion as well. Nice. So what, what would you say is like something that kind of, kind of like, I, I'm guess, I guess like what, what's the most out of the ordinary thing that you've kind of had, had happened to you or, or had happened around you that kind of solidified your lineage per se? I mean, as far as kind of solidified that, you know, this was a thing for me in, in general. Yeah. It was kind of a combination of a lot of different things. Very, very early on, I remember one of my earliest kind of recollections of actually doing intentional magic was when I was really young. It, my parents had signed me up for t-ball, um, which is like little kid baseball, and I absolutely hated it. Uh, I was not good at baseball. The other kids were not nice to me. It was just I was not having a good time. So. I found out that if I could make it rain, then I wouldn't have to play because they would cancel the games. <laughs> so I began to do that as a little kid so that I wouldn't have to play. And that was kind of my, my first recollection. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, a lot of weather magic, especially when, when you're young. It's, it's, I don't know, something about being a kid and having that super open mind to possibilities. The bigger stuff kind of seemed to be easier when I was a kid. But yeah, so that was kind of my first memory of kind of being like, oh, okay, so I actually intentionally did something and something responded. And then that was kind of the big like, okay, so this is definitely a thing. And, you know, on top of that, of course, was the, the psychic abilities as well. I was having dreams of the future and, and then things would come true that I would see in dreams and, and all that stuff. So it all kind of just filtered in in a lot of little ways that grew into one kind of big mass after a while. Did, did you and your family kind of have like, like ritualistic practices together coming up or, or do, do you still kind of partake in that? A little bit. I, I used to think that my upbringing was super normal until not that long ago. Somebody asked me to like write down my witch story in like 
uh, over the span of about three pages. And then when I did that, then I was like, oh, this was not normal at all. Um, so I grew up with things like, of course, you know, we have my mom's extended family, who's a little weird. Like my grandmother, her mom used to say that she heard the voice of God and he would tell her things, very useful things. And I think it was her way of kind of coming to terms with psychic ability that if she said it was God, that she felt more comfortable about it. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of, you know, one of the things that would come in. But I grew up with a mom who would read tarot cards for her friends, you know, at our dinner table at night, you know, with candles lit. And I remember things like blue candles full of black glass that was used once to banish one of my mother's unruly bosses. So (laughs) I, I definitely did grow up with it around, but it all seemed very normal to me. Until mm-hmm. I grew up and I was like, oh, this was all, this was all weird. Uh, not, other people don't do this, apparently. So, yeah, that, that was a bit of it for me. Wow. You know, I, I know that, like, per- personally growing up, so my, my mom's side of the family is completely Hispanic. And, like, we're talking literally my family lineage. I've actually traced back back to the Aztecs. And it's, it's so weird like so, some things that that happen as you know as a kid you know there there's like certain specific things that like my mom and my dad were both christian but my mom would do these like little bits of unknown magic to me mm-hmm. like putting a uh she used to put like a little uh, a glass of water under my bed when i felt sick or when i had like nightmares or anything like mm-hmm. that and she'd put like a broom behind the door. She'd do like little, little brujeria things that I always thought was just normal. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, just talking to other people, it's like, no, we don't, we don't have, we don't do that type of stuff. What is that? So I kind of, kind of know what you mean by, by the whole normal, exactly. like, th- like a perceived yeah, normalcy. Absolutely. Yeah. That was one of the interesting things about doing the research for the book was I would sit down with a lot of people who were very much like you because I, I kind of reached out to every Mexican-American person I could find, every person who came over here you know, from Mexico and sat down and talked with them. And so I would sit down with people very much like you and I'd be like, okay, I'm writing this book on you know, Mexican-American folk magic. And they'd be like, whoa, 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 you've, you've got the wrong person. I don't do that. That's not, you know, in my wheelhouse. I'm not a bruja or a brujo or anything like that. And I'm like, just, just hear me out. And so I would start off with things like, you know, when you would get sick, what were some of the things that your parents would do? And then they'd pull up things like, you know, oh, my mom used to like do this thing where she would put, you know, a glass of water under my bed or, you know, one person told me that like their mom used to mix up like the Vicks with like some of their saliva and like some salt and then like apply it in the form of the cross mm-hmm. on them. And then, and it was so funny because as they would begin to be like, oh yeah, this was a thing that they did. Suddenly you could see it just dawn on them, like a light bulb that just went off and they go, <laughs> that's magic. And I'm like, yes, it is. And then they're like, wait, and then this, you know, like the room and then this over here and then that. And I'm like, yes, it's all magic. And then they would like, I would just accidentally blow their mind at how magical their lives actually were. And they didn't realize it. Oh, just, just thinking back, like how many times did my mom just go, you know, put, put the, the Vicks on my chest going sana, sana, colita de rana. (laughs) Yeah. And then I'm over here like my grandmother swears by Vix, but no, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when researching the book, how did you find 
kind of your resources or your friends, family kind of reach out to that or people in the community? Yeah, I started off with friends and family, people around me that I knew directly. And then they would often lead me to other people who they felt either had more experience in them or like my mom at the time was working at a Mexican owned restaurant. And so I would come in and I would be sitting there with waitresses and bussers and cooks and things like that. And them telling me their stories and, and just so many of them, there was like not, not only things just about the folk magic part, but also things about times where people saw, you know, um, spirits like La Llorona or El Cucuy or, you know, saw Guadalupe. Uh, one, one of them told me the story about they were running from the police and they believed that Guadalupe gave them directions to kind of like get away from them at one point. So it was, it was so neat. And then once they were done telling me, then they would often bring in other people that they knew or like they would call their mom to be like, what was that thing you used to do to me as a kid? And like, why did you do it that way? And, and then, you know, <laughs> send all of that over to me, which was really helpful as well. So a lot of the research was just mm -hmm. talking with Mexican American people and just being like, you know, and then comparing my own practice with theirs and, and learning and exchanging. And then that's kind of how the book was, was made. And how much of that research do you think affected your own personal practice? Oh, a lot of it. A lot of it. Simply because it helped me understand a lot of the whys better because I had a lot of the hows, but the whys are the things that are the hardest to find because those are things that a lot of times people forget about or it gets lost, you know, kind of those things where it's like, and folk magic is, is like this in a lot of ways, but there used to be this old joke or something that my mom used to tell me about this woman teaching her daughter how to make a roast. And she's like, and then at the end, before you put it into the pan, you cut off the end. And her daughter's like, why? She's like, well, because that's how my mom taught. And then, you know, so then she calls her mom and is like, well, okay, why do we cut off the ends of the roast? And she's like, oh, because my pan wasn't big enough. And no. so those, you know, the, the whys that we find out later, you know, kind of getting passed down are sometimes kind of hilarious, but also sometimes they're, you know, very deeply mystical. And so finding out the whys, you know, how we ended up with some of these was, was really neat for me. I love that. Just, just you know, the, the, the whole, cause I, I've, I've, I have countless stories about, you know, my mom teaching me how to cook and, you know, like say like di diff different things, like her mom used to show her and it was just one of those, like, why do we do this? Why do this? And it just ma just makes me think of like all the times where like, you know, there's a deep significance and then it was like, oh, cause the pot wasn't big enough. <laughs> I, just, I, yeah. I love that. Exactly. Well, before we dive into actually talking about your book, one thing I want to tell our listeners is that I had, I have not finished, but I have had an amazing experience reading this book. You're just so witty and easy to understand and just... I haven't taken a highlighter to a quote unquote witchy book in years. And I got like two pages in and I'm like, this is my book. I can highlight it. Like it's not destroying a totem or, or anything. I, I'm, I'm going to highlight some stuff. <laughs> and I'm like texting our producer, Taolok, like lines from the book and making him laugh and him go, oh yeah, that that's definitely true. <laughs> stuff like that because as our listeners know both Jara and Taolok are Mexican-American so I'm like the one person who has no experience or no real 
history or exposure. I haven't had any real exposure to the side of magic or folk magic. And so I really appreciate the work that you put into this book, how much of yourself you put into this book. But one of my favorite parts that I want to mention for people like me, white people, is that you give a really great explanation of why this is accessible to white people and why it's okay and how to keep yourself in check. And like, at first I was like, oh, I feel a little uncomfortable. I don't want to be reading this when it should be for somebody else. And then I got to that portion and I went, okay, no, you want everybody to read this and you're giving us the tools to make sure that we're doing it appropriately. And I so appreciated that. I loved how you put it. It was just very kind and understanding with the backbone of, but if you don't do it with respect, it's not for you anymore. And I appreciated that. Thank you. That was a part that was very important for me to put in. I felt um, mm-hmm. simply because once you put out a book like this into the world, you you no longer have control of, over it. And I, mm-hmm. I do want, you know, people from outside of, you know, the Mexican American community to read the book because it's important to be educated on those around you and the cultures around you and, you know, what is going on around you because, and especially when it comes to, you know, cultures and communities of color. Because, you know, it's been shown that if we are educated about other cultures and we're less likely to be racist against them. And so I was really hoping that this book would sort of extend that sort of an olive branch to it. But again, I, I very much felt the need to also protect my community at the same time. And I wasn't comfortable saying, yes, this is absolutely open to everybody without any sort of you know, nuance or, <laughs> or anything like that. I didn't want to just be like, yes, come everybody just steal everything you would like. So I wanted to kind of be like, yes, you are welcome here. However, we need to have a conversation. You know, are, are you supporting the Mexican community? Are you living in harmony with this? Are you creating competition for us and things like that, which is, which are all things that we really need to, to be aware of in this. And we've seen this a lot happen with you know, indigenous medicine ceremonies, you know, as a Native American person, you go to a sweat lodge and everyone there, including the person leading it, are non-Native American people there. And you're the only Native American in the group. You can feel very Mm -hmm. kind of out of place in your own culture. And so I wanted to sort of Mm -hmm. make sure that I wasn't promoting that within my own culture, but at the same time, keeping it open to people from outside of the community to learn and understand and even participate respectfully. That was important for me. And I think you achieved it beautifully. I love how you gave checks and balances, not just things that can be used while doing the magic or entering the community, but like I, I want to incorporate those when I'm asking somebody to come on this show and making sure that when I'm asking somebody of color that or of a indigenous magical practice that we're respecting that. And I think these tools can be utilized outside of magical work in the mundane community, in the mundane world. And just being able to have that resource written down, it's just it's done very respectfully and just to me it really was that olive branch that you mentioned and it just really made me feel more comfortable being here in this space and holding this book and being able to 
gather what I can from it. And also to realize all of these connections. A lot of the time you're talking about community culture and how magic is still flowing through Mexican-American communities. And I see a lot of parallels with Irish American communities or even Irish Catholic communities. And it just, it was nice to be able to be in that moment in your book. That's wonderful. And that's one of the things that I've loved so much is the number of people who've come forth that are like, I'm not Mexican. However, this helped me understand my Italian ancestors or my Irish ancestors or my Italian or Irish family, you know, our grandparents, things like that. So I love that it was helpful cross-culturally for people to understand why their, you know, grandparents or great-grandparents did the things that they did or believe the things that they did. This work is very similar to things like Italian folk magic. And I, of mm-hmm. course, highly always recommend Mary Grace Farron's book, Italian Folk Magic. It's, it's really beautifully done. But you can see a lot of the crossover and, and a lot of kind of similarities in our culture and how we work. And so I love that it was able to sort of go beyond just the Mexican-American world and kind of impact people beyond that. That was very, that uh, was unexpected, but also very, very welcome. Yeah. Aren't those just the beautiful moments when you realize you can touch more people than you expected? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I think we're going to take a very short break and we'll be right back. All right, we are back. And again, in studio, we have J. Allen Cross, the author of American Brujeria, Modern Mexican-American Folk Magic. And we do want to go go into a little bit about the book. One of my questions is what was the inspiration? Like what, what got you going on this path to actually make this book? Well, I had been wanting to write a book for a while. And there was a few different possible topics for my first book. And I wasn't sure which direction I wanted to go in. And a lot of people were like, oh, well, you know, you're you're Mexican-American, so you should write one on, you know, brujeria. And I'm like, okay, but I don't do traditional brujeria. That's, that's not something that, that I do. That's not something that I'm versed in. But people kept asking, and I, so I just kind of had it in, in the back of my brain thinking like, well, maybe one day I'll learn about it and then I'll write a book. And then I began to sort of realize, looking around at the work that I was doing and the work that Mexican-American people in the community around me were also doing. And I'm like, oh, well, even though I wouldn't necessarily classify this as traditional brujeria, which has its own kind of specific method of working, it is kind of of Mexican origin. And it's something that has been passed down to a lot of people who do this work. Um, and when you ask people who are American, who are, you know, who are Mexican-American, you ask them, what is this called? They still call it brujeria because it's kind of like a, almost like a joke a little bit because, you know, oh, it's, it's like scary. You know, it's that witchcraft stuff. You know, it's that brujeria that your grandma told you to stay away from. You know, like it's kind of tongue in cheek. And so I'm like, oh, that's interesting that we're still, you know, using that term with our own kind of 
blend of something that is partially old Mexican versus new American. And we're still using this term. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I decided, I was like, well, this is a style of working that I'm comfortable with, that I, that I see within my community. This is also an opportunity to spotlight a, a demographic that people like to pretend don't exist, really. Because when you're Mexican and American, you know, the American people think that you're fully Mexican and the Mexican people think that you're fully American and neither one of them really want you. Um, so we end up kind of in this middle <laughs> island place. And anytime we have this uh, kind of our, our own any sort of isolated population, you end up having your own folk magic. And so I decided to really kind of dive into what people were doing nowadays in the United States as the descendants of Mexicans. And the book earlier that I was mentioning, Mary Grace Farron's book on Italian folk magic, was was a big inspiration too. watching kind of how she sort of unfolded her family magic in this book was I was reading her book. It was actually on my nightstand when I was like, oh, my gosh, I could do the same thing with my community. And so I decided to do just that. And when I first pitched the book about, you know, this is going to be a book about, you know, Mexican-American folk magic. And my publisher was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Then I had a panic attack because I'm like, wait, I, I can't be the only one to speak for my community here. And it's highly possible that the way that I work is not the way that a lot of people in, in my community work. And so that's when I started reaching out to everybody that I knew and, you know, getting their take on it and how their family does it. Because very much like cooking, you know, we were kind of talking about that earlier, folk magic is the same way, where from family to family, you will do things very differently. So we can all make an apple pie, but all the old ladies in the kitchen are going to argue about the best way to do it. And folk magic is very similar <laughs> to that way. So I got to kind of hear how everyone would go about it and was able to kind of collect the common threads that everyone had in common and sort of unpack how that works and then kind of put it into a book. So that, that was kind of how I ended up writing about it was almost kind of by accident. Nice. So what, what would you say would be like the, the hardest aspect of, of getting this out there? I guess trying to get people to understand what it is that I'm talking about, because a lot of people draw some very intense conclusions about who I am and what the book is about simply based on the title. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, people have misconceptions about it. So I have, it's really funny, I'll have people come at me online about things that I supposedly said or put in the book that I definitely didn't. So I know that there are a lot of people who haven't read the book, who have mm -hmm. just made assumptions kind of based on it. But once you get into the book, I do a lot, especially in the first chapter of kind of unpacking everything that I'm talking about. What do I mean by American Brujeria? Why is it important? Who does this? Things like that. So that's all stuff that I think was the hardest part is getting people to actually stop for two seconds to hear what it is that I'm talking about. And once they do, then they're like, oh, okay. And then they're on board. But the people like to draw a lot of conclusions very early on about things. It's just how kind of internet culture is these days. Yeah, I do appreciate that um, very early on in the book, you give a good like lexicon education on the word bruja and like how it is used differently here in America versus in Mexico and why it wouldn't be safe if you're using that language here and saying that's what you're doing. You don't want to mm -hmm. do that or have that same conversation in Mexico. 
Yeah, those are very different things. Because if you say you're, you know, a bruja, you know, in the United States, then you're like, you know, someone who maybe has some crystals or, you know, uh, practices kind of in practices witchcraft in a in a manner that is resembling, you know, their Mexican heritage or, or maybe influenced by that or things like that. So it's a very broad term in the United States. But when you go to Mexico and you say, I'm a bruja or brujo, people will like literally run away from you because you just told them like, oh, yeah, I you know, fly through the night and eat babies and things like that is, is what you've essentially just told them. So it, it, it has a very different weight to it, depending on where you are standing in the world when you use a term like that. Right. And before we dive into more content, when we first started before recording, we um, were talking about your cover. How much of influence did you have on it and why were certain aspects picked? To be completely honest, I had zero say in the cover. At one point, they actually asked me, they were like, hey, like, could you let us know some things that you would want to see on the cover and things that you wouldn't want to see on the cover? And so I wrote this long email about like, you know, the important symbols that I felt should be on there. You know, I really felt that like, you know, Guadalupe should be on there. And these other things like scissors are a really big part of this work and like all this other stuff. So I'm talking about the symbols and the possible things we can put on it. And the one thing that I added in there that I really did not want to go on the cover simply because they put one of these on the cover of every Mexican magic book. And that is a skull. I did not want a skull. I specifically said that. And then they sent me back. <laughs> the cover. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I had a, a minor no. meltdown, but the thing is, the thing is, is that Wiser has been doing this for a really long time and they know how to market a book well and they know how to get people's attention. And that is the number one thing that I get compliments on is how great the cover is. So I just I need to trust Wiser because they do know what they are doing. But I that was kind of a funny part in the publishing because, I mean, you know, as as an author, you only get a certain amount of control over, you know, how your book is handled as far as, you know, what it looks like, how it's shipped, things like that. Mm-hmm. So that, that was hilarious. But they did in the end definitely do a good job. Yeah, I, I will say that that is definitely one thing that I've I've noticed with a lot of like the Brujeria books and, and things that I've seen is that it's always a skull. There's always a skull on it. Mm-hmm. And I guess it, it, it is one of those, uh, it, it's it's just a calling factor to it. It's like, you, you know, you know exactly what you're, what you're looking at when you see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, I have not finished the book, but I like how in the beginning you do do a good job of kind of unpacking the differences between what you're talking about and what is going on in Mexico and then explaining who is doing this work, who's drawn to it. And like I said earlier, how to handle coming at this from a white perspective. And then I feel like you do go into a lot about Catholicism, which I appreciate because it is heavily steeped in Catholicism and like how we know as outsiders, how we know voodoo and hoodoo work is also based in Catholicism and taking it and putting culture back into what essentially conquerors came in and enforced. Do you, well, I know because of our conversations, you do practice Catholicism. 
I, I, I think I know where you're going with this. Okay. So how, how, how does your practice intertwine with Catholicism? Like what, what, are, what are some things that you kind of take and give from your Catholicism and, and the practice of brujería? Well, I, I like to call it Catholic Plus, which is also known as folk Catholicism, <laughs> which is like, yes, Jesus, yes, the Bible and the saints and the angels and Mary, but also a whole mess of other stuff that we already know about. Because w- when it comes to folk Catholicism, what folk Catholicism is, is when you take an indigenous population from anywhere in the world that's pagan, and then you have colonization happen where they try and enforce Catholicism on top of what they've already had. So in Mexico, we have a lot of indigenous communities. You know, we have the Maya, we have the Aztecs, we have, we have all of this that's already happening. These are all very deeply spiritual communities already. These are people who have already made contact with spirits and gods on the other side and worked with them and interacted with them. And so for colonizers to show up and say, actually, none of those things exist. The only things that exist in the world are angels and demons and God. We know that that is not correct because we've already met a lot of these things. (laughs) So we kind of go like, okay, yes, angels, yes, demons and God, but also all of these other things that we know for sure exist because we've been interacting with them for hundreds, if not thousands of years already. And then we then kind of have to weave them together. And that, that weaving is, is something that happens on a lot of different levels. I mean, colonization is a very complicated process and often a very brutal, horrible process, mm-hmm. but we end up kind of weaving the old in with the new to create something different. And so a lot of people misunderstand me and this work because they think that I just love the Catholic church and Catholicism as an institution that like me and priests and, you know, the Catholic institution are just best friends. And that could not be further from the truth because actually none of this work that we're talking about is technically allowed or recognized or approved by the church. Yes, I'm saying a Hail Mary or an Our Father, and yes, I am speaking to a Catholic saint, but that's kind of where the end of the road is as far as Catholic approval. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we do is very subversive when it comes to Catholicism. None of this stuff is is quote-unquote like good Catholic people stuff. This is actually very heretical, but the vehicle that we are in is Catholicism. But the way that we interact with it and utilize it is not something that the church approves of or likes. In fact, they're very angry about it. So when when people come to me and they're just like, oh, well, this is just Catholicism and this is just, you know, like they have all this problem with the church. It's like, no, I also do not like the church as an institution. Just because I pray the rosary doesn't mean that I'm really down with whatever the Pope just said. Like, these are two very different things. So when it comes to folk Catholicism, I think that's something that's really important to to understand. And folk Catholicism is, is the bulk of my practice. And really, we can't remove the Catholic portions of brujería, even traditional brujería. We can't do that because a lot of people mistake this for an indigenous practice, and it's not. It's actually, brujería is a Spanish word because it was brought from Spain. 
it was influenced by a lot of different places. Brasilia is very complicated, and it depends on which kind of Latin American country that you are in, what kind of combination of cultures created it. But this is the bulk of it is something that was brought over from Spain, especially in things like the books of Saint Cyprian, which are also heavily folk Catholic as well. Again, this is not standard Catholic mysticism that the church is super into, but something else. It's kind of a, a more crooked version of Catholicism. Yeah, I'm sorry if I um, misspoke, but I, I feel like in your book, you do say like that this isn't or you give off that that feeling like this does come from or come out of, but also it's not. And a lot of your mm-hmm. conversations about going into the church is be respectful but also note that the people around you aren't going to necessarily approve or like some of the things that you're coming here to do or that you're planning on doing when you leave. So don't be disruptive and maybe keep it on the down low. And I could understand and um, connect with those aspects as somebody who walked away from the Catholic Church. Indeed. So moving on. One of my questions, or I guess things I want to dive into, is that after you give a good explanation of what is the practice, what's going on here, you dive into different people or spirits involved. And all throughout the beginning of the book, until we got to the Virgin or Guadalupe or Mary section, I had the question of how is she this most important character when in my Catholicism growing up, Mary was like a almost, I feel like in comparison, a step down, whereas in a lot of Mexican American culture, I see that she's held almost higher than God or at God's level a lot of the times. And I think your chapter really gave a great under, gave me a better understanding of why and how, especially with the story of Guadalupe and how her temple came about and just herself and Do you want to talk a little bit about the Virgin or Mary? Absolutely. So this is, she's such a complicated kind of entity because people are often either on one side of this or the other, where you have people who are like, oh, she's not Mary at all. And that's super offensive to say that she's Mary and blah, blah, blah. And you have other people too that are like, like, no, clearly she is Mary. She is the Virgin, blah, blah, blah. I, I think a lot of her magic comes from the fact that she is both. She is in between. She is a crossroads spirit in that way, where on one hand, she is an indigenous goddess known as Tonantzin. That was very important to the indigenous people at the time of colonization. She was a kind of a, a mother earth kind of goddess that was very, very important to them. But on the other hand, too, if we look at the image of Guadalupe, it's clearly Marian in nature. Like it, it looks like an image of Mary, but all the symbolism and especially things like her skin color and things like that are all very indigenous. And so it's this very important mix of two different worlds coming together. And it was really sort of her appearance that I never want to give the, the impression that once she appeared, everything was okay. Cause that, that's definitely not how it happened, but, mm-hmm. but she was such a symbol that helped the people get through that period that they everyone kind of could get behind that was very important so she she is a character that is extremely 
valuable in this work. And she's kind of the central axis of it because we have to remember that this is a spirit or an image that a lot of the indigenous people were most comfortable with. That wasn't Jesus or God or something that was so foreign to them. So she became kind of the, the pinnacle of the spirituality of the belief um, because she was familiar. She was something that they saw themselves in. So we ended up having having her, like you were talking about, kind of ascend to a much higher place. And in fact, a lot of times people will kind of work with her in place of God instead, or as someone who has just as much power, or at least they kind of believe that. And so that, that's important to consider in the work. And we also have another layer on that. We have a whole kind of group of people that refer to themselves as Guadalupanos, which is which are people who follow the the story and I guess sort of the the teachings of Guadalupe, but are not Catholic, but they are just Guadalupe specific, um, which is really interesting to look at as well. So there's a lot of different layers to her, and a lot of people don't like there to be layers to her because they want her to be specifically one thing or the other, but she defies that much like Mexican-American people defy a a lot of the stereotypes that people try to put on them as well. So I I think she is a reflection of us as people, and I think that's very important and very powerful. I've I've actually never heard it put so so poignantly. Like, that's actually probably one of the better explanations that I've heard of it. And that's why it helped me understand it so well. Obviously, being in the Southwest, I I am... I guess, better exposed these days to Mexican-American culture than I was in Georgia. So there was a lot of it that I'm seeing from the outside and going, I'm a little confused. So being able to read the book, like you said earlier, really did help bridge some of those gaps in my knowledge and help me understand and be more respectful and under and just understanding. I can say the word understanding 16 more times. <laughs> <laughs> And I, now you can definitely understand a lot of the a lot of the stuff that that T and I talk about. Yes, however, there's not a whole lot of conversation in Jay's book about shoes and your mother's. That that is true. That is true. Which I think is is good, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but um, less joking, more book related, and then you go into a lot of the other saints that are worked with a lot. I I was amused that you started out with female saints and then moved to some of the male saints, but there was a definite more females, which in my church growing up, there was definitely more male saints talked about and angels as well. Absolutely. That's very common. And I, I kind of wanted to do that on purpose simply because you know, everyone knows about, you know, St. Michael and St. Jude and Anthony and Christopher and all of them. But there are so many really neat female saints. And what I kind of love about saints, too, is the things that we took as proof that back then that they are saints were also things that later we used as proof that people were witches. Things like mm-hmm. immunity to being burned or drowned or healing spontaneously from wounds or things like that were things that we used to be like, oh, that means that they're a saint. And then, you know, a couple, few hundred years out, you know, depending on which saint you're talking about, you know, we get to the witch trials and suddenly those are the things that make witches. And so I think the difference between saints and witches are, are actually not that far apart in a lot of the stories. And a lot of the female saints have very 
sort of powerful stories, especially I'm kind of looking at my St. Martha statue right now, that her story involves a dragon that she ended up subduing and then tying up with her girdle strings. And if that's not Mm -hmm. a couple thousand year old feminist symbol, I don't know what is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you um, go into that story and it made me so sad that the dragon died in the end. I was just like, ah, people not attacking what they don't understand just broke my little heart. Yeah, I don't know if I say this in the book or not. I can't remember. But some people believe that the story of St. Martha and the Dragon, because it happened in France, I believe, there was there's a specific town that it's said to have happened in. But they believe that the story of St. Martha and the Dragon was the seminal story for Beauty and the Beast in a lot of the ways, with this idea of someone who's kind of like, a little bit of an outsider, you know, young maiden that sort of tames this beast that's, you know, maybe terrorizing the town or the town is afraid of. But then once she goes to show them, like, it's safe, it's okay, it's not dangerous, then they attack and kill it. So I don't know if that's true, but I I would like to think it is true. (laughs) Hmm. I like that. That, That's actually a, a good explanation for it, too. So uh, one one thing that I've I've seen a lot coming up just just kind of doing research on on the book and on you one thing that that pops up a lot and especially being somebody that's that's by culture the importance of the in between of being in between what like j- just just for anybody who who hasn't picked up the book yet and because I know you do go into this a little bit in in the book what's for for you, explain the in-between. Uh, so it has to be kind of explained on, on two different levels. So the first thing we'll, we'll kind of talk about is a liminal space. And in witchcraft, if you've been studying witchcraft for any amount of time, you've probably heard this term before, a liminal space, which is where, which is an in-between place or a place where two things meet. So for instance, like a, a doorway or a threshold is a liminal space because it's in between two rooms. Similarly, something like the beach is a liminal space because it's where land and sea meet. Or most notably, a crossroads, right? These are where two roads intersect. And when you stand in the center of a crossroads, which road are you on? Well, you're on both. And if you're on both, then you are also on neither road because it's this weird paradox, this weird gray area where eh, some of the rules can be thrown out. These are very powerful, magical places. This is where it's said that spirits can interact with our world, where powerful magic can be worked. That's why we hear about crossroads so much in in witchcraft and magic and folk magic, is is because it is a liminal space. It is an in-between, which is very powerful. Then we come over to demographics of anyone, really, who is in between two cultures, whether you are Mexican-American or you are african-american or you are asian-american you often find yourself in between two cultures where from the mexican-american point of view when you go to hang out with american people you're like the token mexican but when you go and hang out with mexican people they're like no you're white go away (laughs) like there is no like you are you're kind of at the same time both of these worlds and at the same time you are neither of these worlds which creates a liminal space within a person themselves and that means that those of us who fall in between two things have an extraordinary amount of power that folks are often not aware of 
especially being like, you know, especially experiencing being Mexican American, it can often feel very lonely, very isolating. And I wanted to sort of flip that script a little bit and be like, no, this is not about you being unwanted. This is about you being very powerful. You are a bridge between two different cultures, two different worlds. And if we would kind of wake up to that idea or understand that, then we can take a hold of the power that is inherently there, where we are not Mexican or American. We are both. And yet at the same time, neither. That is a very powerful space to be in. And so that's kind of what I, I, I unpack it a little more eloquently in the book, but, but that's kind of the idea about being in between is not something that's bad, but something that's very powerful. I definitely feel that on a, on a spiritual level. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'd actually like to read, I highlighted a portion of that exact part of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the part that I highlighted is, therefore, we are opponent magical beings. Most of us are naturally psychic or otherwise in tuned. It is not uncommon for us as liminal people to experience paranormal or supernatural phenomenon more frequently than others. We all carry the blood of our ancestors who lived in Mexico, however many generations ago. You see, they knew things, powerful things. Abuela spent their, her life among creatures that most of the world would dismiss as legend, fairy tale, or myth. Yes. I can't even see you, and I know you have chills, Jara. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it's, it's something that I've literally been dealing with my entire life, and yet not knowing that it's there. Mm-hmm. And that, that definitely, definitely sums it up. Another thing that I highlighted that I read to Talok that he literally went, hells yeah, to the only person El Diablo is afraid of on Earth is an abuela. It is true. Yep. <laughs> she will come abuela and the almighty chancla. <laughs> that was one of the spells that I put in the book, yeah. too, was somebody was telling me about how their grandma or like a few people were telling me this, that they would put... So it's kind of perfect that you brought up La Chancla because there is actually a spell that I put into the book that actually a couple of people told me about, and these were unrelated people, that there is a habit of folks to, like when they enter someone's home and, they, and you take off your shoes, that they'll actually put their, their sandals or, you know, Las Chanclas, one on top of the other to make the sign of the cross in order to keep away bad things. And I thought that that was hilarious that we are using the power of Las Junglas to protect us from the evil as well. So, you know, also a benevolent weapon. And I, I think that's important. I never would have thought of that because I've, I've seen that because so like, like I said before, my mom's family is from Mexico. And there's been a lot of times where where we've gone to visit and they always told us to, you know, pretty much take off our shoes, put them by the front door. And one of the, one of the, one of my younger cousins actually would go over and just out of nowhere, just cross the shoes. And I'm thinking to myself, that's kind of the, kind of the weirdest thing. But now I actually realize that that's, they were kind of inherently doing some magic. Absolutely. That's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> well, so, uh, listeners, just so you guys know, unfortunately, we did lose Autumn. Her 
system did cut out, but we're going to go ahead and just kind of finish off things here. Josh, again, thank you so much for joining us on uh, on the podcast and just kind of letting us know more about about your book. Where can we find your book? How can how can our listeners get a hold of it? Absolutely. So the book is available pretty much anywhere the books are sold right now, which is great. I do like to steer people towards their local metaphysical bookstore or local small bookstore that they have, um, see if they can order it through there or pick it up there as well. Especially our metaphysical bookstores are kind of the backbone of our community. So I really appreciate it when people can support them. If you if you can't purchase it from there, I also recommend going to bookshop.org, where a little bit of the money from the purchase goes to help support small bookstores as well. Of course, it is available on Amazon and all over the place as well. So it's it's fairly simple to find. And you can find me on Instagram at Oregon Woodwitch with little underscores in between. You can find me there, stay up to date with everything I'm doing, book a reading or a spell service with me or cruise my Etsy or my blog. All that stuff can be found through my Instagram. Oh, that's awesome. I, yeah, I, I, I know my, my Instagram, I have a bunch of underscores in it too. So I, I always tell people just just underscore 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 everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, and of course, once again, thank you so much just for just for taking the opportunity. If you guys have the opportunity to look up this book and to and to get it, I you know I, I haven't read it yet, and I already highly recommend it just because it's j- just from all the all the background that I've. I've been seeing on it all the positive reviews. They are they're just so overwhelmingly good, and a lot of people are are just ranting and raving about this about this book and about this this new book in the magical community. So thank you for for being a vessel to actually get the get these words out here. And of course, we do want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Again, you know, with Patreon, we do have a lot of uh, a lot of great benefits. We have an extra uh, extra mini sewed every month, and of course, don't forget we are going to be going dark coming up pretty soon after October, just for a couple of months because of life issues going on, and of course, our normal vacation time. But Patreon supporters, we got some new ones. We want to thank. Uh, we've got two Sarahs that have uh, supported Patreon. And I believe that's a Michael, correct? Yes. So thank you guys. You guys are new Patreon supporters. Make sure you keep your eyes open on for some mail coming your way sometime in the near future. And of course, for all you active Patreon supporters, again, we do appreciate every little thing that you do for us to help us bring this awesome show and awesome guests, just like J. Allen Cross, to the show to have you guys listen. So, and... Are there any parting words that you want to go ahead and give to our listeners, uh, Josh? Just know that if you find yourself in between and you feel like you might be alone, just simply remember that you are not. This book and kind of the community that has been formed around it really proves that there are a lot of us here in between. So you are not alone. You are in good company and you are a powerful, magical being. Awesome. Well, thank thank you again. And of course, you guys know where to find us. We do have our Instagram. We do have pretty much just look, look us up on anything as Millennial Pagan Pod or Millennial Pagan Podcast. And of course, you can find me uh, on Instagram as uh, Haggard Hagrid Cosplay underscores under all of those. And of course, on TikTok, 
AZ Silent Bob underscores between those. And uh, from all of us here at Millennial Pagan Podcast, Merry Meet, Merry Part, and Merry Meet again. <laughs>